You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is your host for the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Sims. I'm here at the 35th Great Basin Anthropological Conference in Reno, Nevada, and I've got Randy Ottenhoff here. Uh, Him and I were talking in uh, one of the uh, conference rooms outside of the uh, presentations about his research on incised stones. So we'll hear from him about his uh, pretty fascinating work. So, Randy, can you give me a little bit of a background on, uh, you know, where where you're working on and what your research was? Right. So I focused on incised stones of the Great Basin. Um, my inspiration for that started when I was an undergraduate at UC Davis, uh, and I I worked on a collection of incised stones from Ruby Cave. It was great. It was a great experience, and I. Um, started to look at the what literature was available and really noticed that these had been understudied. Um, there was there was there was literature, but it was um, I thought I felt then it was lacking. And yeah. There was a lot more to be said. So your research was like pioneering in a lot of ways then? Um well it's important to remember other people had done some work. Mm-hmm. Um, Janice Klimowitz had she did her master's in 1988 uh, from UN, UNR. Uh-huh. Uh, so she, she, had, she had looked at a collection called the Santini Collection in which she, she made a typology uh, a design classification. Oh, cool. Yeah. So she, she did that uh, work. And then there was um, Trudy Thomas who did um, work at Gatecliff on the inside stones there. Yeah. Um, so she she did some she did that. Of course, David Hurst Thomas also did uh, some some early research on inside stones, um, and and there was there was others, but it it looked to me like there was a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah, and so I wanted to um, I at an early time in my archaeological career I I. I really was interested in what associations, things okay. things that are associated uh, in context. So, yeah. um, and I I wanted to uh, really really take that to the inside stones, and I, I had seri- big questions. What are these inside stones associated with? Yeah, and and I wanted a threshold for that. I wanted I wanted to get a tight handle on on a small area so uh-huh. I, I wanted to, um, I started looking at um, what what you know what that could be and um, it the archaeological sites that I used which were um, gate cliff rock shelter and swallow sh- swallow shelter uh-huh. and hog up cave camel's back cave and Ruby cave they had um, Good provenience within 1.5 meters. Oh, nice! And so that was my threshold yeah. that I that I, I I used. And so um, I entered. Uh, I went to the University of Central Lancashire in Preston, England. Yeah. And it was a great experience there. We had um, when I started my research. I I knew that I needed to do a lot of museum research. Yeah. Uh, I 
had a discussion early on with my director of studies, who is Dr. David Robinson, and we both agreed it would probably be advisable not to stick a shovel in Nevada <laughs> looking for inside stones because yeah. looking at the size and scope of Gate Cliff and Hog Up Cave and Swallow Shelter and the depth at which those sites went, and I, I, at the time I, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look to see these are my sample sites. They've already been excavated, and there's okay. lots of radiocarbon dates available. And so um, I, I did, made a decision early on that I was going to do a lot of museum research. Okay. So I... Um, yeah, because you could spend like a lifetime excavating yeah. caves. <laughs> yeah, and, and I could do that later in my career. Yeah. I decided. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was probably a good idea. So <laughs> I am... Um, so... I, I did my literature search. I you know early in my in my investigation, um, I I wanted to know about these inside stones, not just in the Great Basin, but I started to realize that there was inside stones found worldwide, uh-huh. and um, I Bloombos Cave in South Africa um, that um, Henselwood had had reported in a, in a published paper about these engraved, um, he called them engraved um, ochres that dated to, to 75,000 years ago. Whoa. And it's really early stuff. And, and I used that when I started my lit search, I really used that to, um, um, as, a, as a jumping off place. And I'm, when I, when I started looking at more research that had been done in Africa, I realized that there was some more inside stones uh, found in Zimbabwe and Morocco and um, dating in at um, 30,000, 30, 27,000 years ago. And so I decided, you know, yeah, a whole chapter is dedicated to that in my PhD. So it's, yeah. it's this worldwide um, phenomenon of inside stones. And so I, I sketched out continent by continent what evidence has been found. Um, it turns out there's, in Europe, there's quite a number of these inside stones, especially in Spain, uh, in Portugal, there, in France. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a lot of Neolithic inside stones that were made that are spectacular to look at. Weird. Yeah, there's um, there's even some some of the research. Uh, uh, some of it is tied in with um, mortuary, you know, type of um, uh, archaeology. So, gotcha. so they were like burial goods. They in were those they were found in burial goods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> there is a. An early, an early report um, in, in a report called Materialitis is what they called it. And um, oh, I feel really bad. A researcher that escapes my memory at the moment, she, she and another person, she worked on uh, finding, um, she came up with the, this idea that perhaps the inside stones that were entombed with the dead uh-huh. had absorbed the fluids from the dead and had darkened in color. And she and, and she she hypothesized that perhaps in that way the inside stones became a, a like a 
transportation device of the dead. If you were to go back Whoa. and take it away, then wherever you go, it's going to be infused with that person. Wow. Yeah, really interesting. So, um, of course, in the Russian plains, uh, in, in, uh, there's um, incise stones found there. Um, and then there's, there's in uh, the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a number. There's uh, some found near Jerusalem. Um, there's <clears throat> there's in Japan. There's uh, inside stones found in Japan. So it's it's everywhere. And even yeah. even in South South America, there's inside stones found there too. That's crazy. It is crazy. Um, and so in the in the North America in North America, uh, cl the Clovis site, the Galt site in Texas. Uh huh is I think the earliest inside stone site that we have. And the Galt site is, and then we have in the Great Basin, we have Cowboy Cave. And um, there's some really early dates for Cowboy Cave where there's one inside stone that was found during a, um, what would be a Clovis, almost a pre-Clovis uh, occupation. But uh, I stayed, in my sample, I, I didn't use Cowboy Cave. That early date is was a really wide radiocarbon date um, okay. error. And um, I I decided to use Camelsback Cave um, at that time. Nice. All right. So moving forward with that, I had gone to the Utah Museum of Natural History where um, I used, I did a lot of, um, collecting of as much provenient information I can of Camelsback Cave um, and Hog Up Cave and Swallow Shelter. Yeah. And they, um, they, they, it was great. I, I scanned over 2,000 pages of original field notes that I took, I, 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 I had taken. And then I had, uh, of course, I'd already done research at UC Davis on uh -huh. the Ruby Cave. Uh, stone. So I already had a lot of data from there, and um, I had all the pictures, and I, I photographed all the stones. I had I spent a lot of time studying these stones, look, sitting down and looking at them. Yeah. Um, so it, I, I went back and I uh, did the task of uh, recreating the original excavation floors for these sites. That um, uh, Camelsback Cave did have in published, they had the faunal remains of some of the the, the levels, the, uh -huh. the horizons that they were using for, um, they were using for a, a faunal analysis, a spatial faunal analysis. So, um, but I, I, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have any inside stone. So I recreated uh, the earlier levels at Camelsback Cave um, using their provenance information and I used Illustrator yeah. and I basically just made all of my own symbols and uh, for the artifacts and so I, I placed that all back together and then I did the same thing for Hog Up Cave um, and, and each one of these took a lot of time because yeah. it was it was almost like decoding um, notation uh, I had uh, it, it, I went on. It was like a big hunt yeah. over all of these documents um, to to reconfigure how it all went together. Yeah. And, and I contacted Mel Akins, 
when I had a working um, working sketch of the 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 inside of the cave for um, Hog Up Cave. And then, uh, so I had a working sketch, you know, an illustrator for the cave walls, and then I recreated the original grid based off of the note, just a couple of notations that they had. And then yeah. looking at the extents of how, de how deep they dug and how far their units went. Um, so it, you're getting back to yeah. the associations of everything. Yeah, the associations. Not stones, but everything yeah. that was contained around it. Yeah, everything was contained around it. Cool. So uh, in doing that, I, I started to realize that, oh, actually these units, some of the units at, at Hog Up Cave, they go, um, they go further underneath the wall after they started digging than was you see published. You know? and, uh. and so I had some big questions about that. Yeah. So I sent my stuff to Mel Akins and I, I, I introduced myself in email and uh, I asked him if he could take a look at these and tell me do you, are these accurate and he got back to me and it was great we we got in back into a back and forth email chatter uh, about the these walls of the cave the original grid they used and um, the numbering system they used for each uh -huh. unit and we really uh, he he was instrumental in, in reproducing all of that, and so um, we got it all back together. And uh, I started to then make more symbols to for more artifacts. Yeah. So uh, by the time I was done, I had made 140 uh, artifact symbols that you know for all of these sites. Yeah. And, um, I so I, I did that, and then. I did the same thing for Ruby Cave, and of course I did the same thing for Swallow Shelter, uh -huh. and I even had contacted um, Dally, who excavated uh, Swallow Shelter on the phone, and I had a, a chat with him. Um, so it, it was a great experience, uh, just redoing, you know, putting, doing this and, and finding these associations and all of these maps, it was a great experience, and yeah. um, uh, I, I once it was done, I seriously started to look at those parameters that I was talking about, those 1.5 meter parameters. Now, I should say that Gatecliff already has their spatial maps published in, oh, the, nice. in, the, in the Gatecliff uh, monograph. Yeah. And so in book two. So I didn't spend any time reproducing those. Yeah, you didn't have to like reinvent the wheel. I, with no, that. I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. So I, I started looking at what was associated, and I started to realize that, hey, you know, these inside stones, they're not found by themselves, tucked away in some corner of the cave, away yeah. from everything. These are out in public display. They're, they're mixed with um, the, uh, tools, you know, out, they're, they're mixed with awls and um, uh, uh, Arrow shaft straighteners. They're 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 they're, they're found with um, component materials, things that you like reeds for for basket making. They're they were with um, moccasin material, you yeah. know, things like that. It, um, they they were with bone needles, you, you know, a lot of tools, a lot of component materials, and and in some instances, some of the finished artifacts. Yeah, and so um, I I. I knew that there was increases in inside stone numbers through time and, and on individual site basis. And I 
wanted to understand that greater. So what I started to do is I started looking at the greater environmental picture. I wanted to build a background of what was happening at these sites yeah. when inside number, zone numbers increase okay. and decrease. And so um, as I did that research, I started to realize that um, they, you know, inside zone numbers increase when the weather conditions, the, the climate conditions are most favorable. And, and I, I did that by looking at the pollen data. Oh, nice. So um, I, I started to, and, and then I also looked at all a lot, I looked at the pollen data, I made an inference to say that when there's a large amount of pollen for, for, for different species of plants, then that is a, an indicator of more favorable early rain conditions that these these pollinating plants were able to to be more prolific okay. in the Great Basin if they had a lot of water available, yeah. and and that to me that that was an indicator that uh, there was there was more resources available at that site at the time, and so um, oh, it's interesting how these stones are like indicators of. All sorts of different things going on. Yeah, there's lots of oh, yeah, all kinds of different things going on, and um, I, I started to really look at um, the, there's ground stone, and a lot of instances during the first time these inside stones appear, there's other artifacts that appear at the same time, like ground stone uh -huh. starts to appear at this at the same time. Uh, some of those component materials I was talking about, you know, we're dealing with dry caves and rock shelters, so yeah. they have really good preservation. So they uh, had, you know, lots of stuff starts to come in, uh, stone balls that may have been used for um, hide preparation, uh -huh. rubbing hides down, and that kind of thing starts to appear. And, and so you have a whole new dimension at these sites of, of, of a huge range of activities happening. And inside stones come along with that. And in and, and some instances, especially like at Hog Up Cave, um, inside stones start to come in at the same time uh, the ultithermal is ending. There was a lot more rain and, and more... Um, the, the marshes that existed along the edge of the Great Salt Lake uh -huh. um, during during the, the end of the Holocene, um, they, that actually started to vanish because the lake started to refill, and with the refilling of the lake, the marshes started to disappear. Oh. So uh, I'm sure that the people started had to make some decisions yeah. about how they're going to use the land differently and they're, how they're going to, uh, you know, um, they're going to probably, you know, they, it seems that they started using up uphill sites a lot more. Um, and, so like and moving away from Moving lakes. away from, and, and it correlates really nicely because the number of shore shoreline birds start to diminish in um, Hog Up Cave. Oh. Uh, and so, um, but they, they, they continue to harvest local plants um, because there's there's seeps and springs near Hogup Cave, gotcha. too, right? So they 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 started to exploit uphill, and and that's the time where Hogup Cave gets used a lot more. So and that's 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 kind of the same picture going on at a lot of these sites. Huh. Um, even even at Camel's Back Cave, it, when when the first inside stones happen there, it's uh, the it's the it's the the ultithermal was just getting started. It was really hot, yet 
in the face of that Camel's Back Cave, you have these um, trees. Uh, you have uh, pine trees. Pine, you know the pinion harvest starting up, and you had uh, all of these. You know, you had seeds that were that were available, and so that was being exploited there. Nice. And, and so and so it it ties in even there. There was the resources. There was there was a there was an ability to stay a long period of time. Okay. So I had done some early research with uh, looking at Janice Klimowitz's uh, research that she did in 1988 on inside stones and her classification. She she had made these um, these classifications of designs on the inside stones. Yeah. And when I first read it, I kind of thought I don't know if these really exist uh, honestly I, I wasn't a big fan of of the of the typologies of, the, of, of it and then yeah um, after I had examined thousands of these inside stones I went back and I read reread her work and I reread it again and I thought <laughs> you know these really do exist yeah these these classifications that she came up with from an inside stone collection in southern Nevada do exist in my collection from Utah and from and from northern Nevada. Oh, cool. So that caused me to go back. I I, I went back, I read I, I used her her typology system and I read typology I, I used that system to yeah. to to classify all the designs on the stones I was using. And um I then got really curious. Well, wait. If that, if these, if these designs are like that, well, is there designs associated with certain um, material culture? So then, I on all of my maps, I I coded all of the inside stones based on these classifications, and I went back to the drawing board in a way, and I started looking seriously, like. Okay, well, this is the curvilinear design, and, and I wrote down everything that curvilinear design is associated with, and okay. everything that the bisect design is, is associated with, and I, I started feeding that into my my Excel database, and I started looking at the numbers, and I there's a measurable difference based on classification of what the inside stone is found with. Huh. So um, for like the curvilinear design, it's 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 pretty clear that the the the, the they're associated with um, like gaming dice or gaming sticks, um, and then there's um, like the bisect design was associated with lots of projectile points uh, and that sort of thing, and then another design is associated with um, that it's associated with. Uh, um, these component materials and alls and another one, you know, and so it it it, it almost seems like they're grouped. Yeah. And so I um, so I had that. So I, I and I I had taken um, you know so so these it's important to remember that these designs are recurrent in the Great Basin, and that's true if you're in so, Southern Nevada. It's true if you're in northern Nevada. It's true if you're in Utah yeah. or California. These designs are recurrent. And uh, I really liked how Janice 
had um, had talked about it in terms of a design grammar. So, and 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 it, it, it it's there's there's some sort of grammar to these designs, but we just don't really understand what that yeah what that is. So um, there, it's something that's internally logic to right the people who made it, but not maybe to us. Right? Yeah, and so. Um, so anyway, so with all of that, with all of that, I had I had the background, the background climate data. Uh, I, I had the the technology changes that sort of happened. You know, that was the technology that was brought in at the same time. Inside stones occurred. Um, the the some of the demographics of the people. Yeah. Um, and their their movement through the landscape, and I um, took all of that and. I started to notice at times when you have declining, declining or no numbers of incised stones it, in sites that previously had had yeah. incised stones, you have a different set, a different assemblage of artifacts. And I, and at the same time, you have a declining environment, um, a declining climate in that same um, locale of the site. Uh -huh that probably didn't make it very attractive to hunter-gatherers to go to as a residential base. Yeah. So you had less people. And I know less people equals less inside stones. But I, you still had artifacts happening. And the assemblage was mostly uh, hunting technology assemblages at times when you don't have a lot of inside stones. And so I interpreted that to suggest that at the time that logistical hunters probably didn't make inside stones. So at those times, uh, logistical hunters were just visiting these caves as like a, a hunting camp or something like that. That's right, okay. yes, yeah. Um, and that at times when it was used more, more by the whole group, and when I say the whole group, uh, probably uh, it was uses some sort of residential base uh-huh once again I don't know for how long maybe a weeks months but it was used by these people for a period of time and that it, you had I in my opinion you had um, you, had, you had women and you had children and you had probably if there was any elderly staying there you had a whole group there at those times. And and so um, that's when inside zones are made. Very interesting. So they're not made. I didn't. I don't think they're made by logistical hunters. They're made by whole groups of people staying yeah. together, and um, that probably means something else that I I don't know how well covered this is in the literature, but hunter gatherers probably used an early early springtime reconnaissance system of going to these sites before they made decisions on how they were going to travel in the landscape. Huh. And they probably they probably made judgments on their their these reconnaissance missions to, you know, go back and report to the whole group what yeah. they found. And then that's how they chose where to travel for the for the probably the best survival routine. Yeah. Right. So is there, there's so many questions about these stones then. So like, 
would these stones be a signal uh, uh, to anybody on a reconnaissance mission that these caves would be like an ideal habitat or you know, no, a place I, to visit? I don't think so. I, I think I think by the time that if you were going on a reconnaissance mission, I don't I don't think that's what they were. I I think. Um, I think what ultimately these inside stones are telling us is that um, you, if you're going to have a cultural system of learning, if you're going to pass on learning and memory, you're going to have to have a time where you are hunkered down, not going to go anywhere for a little while, so you can teach your material culture to to the youth. Oh wow! And so, um, and th- so, in a way, I interpreted these inside stones as being a, uh, a rite of passage for people being initiated on how to make material culture. And that, to me, I think explains why you have different placements of, of designs with different assemblages. Uh, and when I say assemblage, I mean, you know, you, you have, to me, an assemblage is um, all, it would be something like Alls and groundstone and um, you know hide hide processing balls and yeah. um, you know or a different assemblage would be projectile points, uh, arrows and shaft straighteners and you know these are these kinds of assemblages that I'm talking about. Yeah. And so um, you have I think that's why you have differences in uh, association there. Yeah. And and you have these context is happening is I think that these things were could have very well been made by the youth wow both men and women at maybe an early age so that leaves a question though um, to me it's it's it, they seems like they left them behind yeah and they, it's not something that they walked around with now maybe that was just practical to not walk around with what you've made um, it was sufficient enough to make it and leave it behind. Right. In much the same way that you maybe you make something and leave it on the wall. Yeah. But, you know, or you, you don't take so there's certain things, certain pieces of art that you, you might make and then not yeah. walk around everywhere with. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know. So like the inside stones then clearly aren't utilitarian objects. Right. I, I think that I don't know if I would call them utilitarian, but they were they were I think they were cultural markers of um, of people's activities of um, of I, th- I think they were involved somehow with with the process of learning. Okay, and, and I think that they were involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that you don't find very very infrequently with inside stones is depictions of people. And very, very infrequently do you find depictions of animals. Huh. It's very, very small amount. And uh, what you get is a lot of geometric shapes and designs. Interesting. And that's different. Um, there is some evidence at Gatecliff Shelter where, um, I think it's Horizon 6, where you have um, 90, 92 inside stones and a, and a two-meter area. And above that is um, is is a uh, is rock art that seems to be very um, uh, it, seem, it seems to be very geometric 
differently shaped in itself, almost as if though it's a reflection of the two. Gotcha. And, and I know Trudy Thomas pointed that out in her, her work also. And um, I think that that's really an interesting, now, it's, it's difficult to place in time, uh, not space, but in time when the two occurred. Did the rock art and the inside stones occur at the same time? Mm-hmm. Or are they separated by hundreds of years? That's a real difficulty. Yeah. But there is a there is a context happening there. There's this association happening there that's interesting. Um, and it comes at a time at Gate Cliff that um, seems that it was a depression in resources, not only there but in other places. So um, I know that Georgia Lee had at an early time talked about crisis art, <laughs> and and I I kind of. Kind of thought, well, maybe maybe this is a crisis art happening here, and yeah. and it's it's um it's set into a structured deposition, and 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 so it's like a structured deposition is uh, something that is it it's 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 a deposit in a structured way, okay, in its simplest form. Does that imply intention? Yeah. Okay. Very intentional. Very intentionally done. Um, it, it started with uh, Durrington, at Durrington Walls in England in 1982 was the first time that that was mentioned um, uh, and so uh, they the, 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 they were looking at these pits that had some pits had flint and some pits that didn't, they had something else and so they were looking at these as being intentionally excluded like these excluded items in different pits and they described that as being a structural deposition. Oh, neat. And so at Gatecliff at that time, I think there's a structural deposition happening. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, maybe it indicates, maybe that particular time indicates um, a delve into why these inside zones were, were even more important. It's yeah. maybe that was tied to some sort of spiritual belief. Okay. So maybe they thought that they hadn't given thanks for what they have. And they left the inside stones in this big structured deposition to make the weather better. Huh. Since it, you know, and maybe that is, you know, it's really speculative. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's like um, maybe they had some sort of connection with this idea that, you know, we haven't given things for what we have or we haven't, you know, the, who, sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But getting back to, um, what this all means for inside stones is that it means that inside stones finally has it finally has a context in the Great Basin. Yeah. So when you find a, a inside stones, it comes wrapped with meaning now um, because it's it's something that you when you find it and you pick it up, you can say, hey, this might mean uh, that there was a large group of people who stayed here for. Somewhat longer period of time, and that they were making new artifacts, and they were using, they were doing hunting here, and they were they were hunkered down, and this actually might show, like some sort of process of learning and passing on of material culture know how, yeah, onto the youth, and 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 it's it's it also means that it comes wrapped with meaning, saying. Hey, you know, this could mean that the climate at that time 
was such that made this site really attractive to them. Yeah. It made it really like, hey, let's go there. There's lots we can we can go there and and hunker down. There's lots of activity happening at both vegetation and 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 the gaming animals. There's there's small critters, there's big 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 critters that hunt, <laughs> yeah. you know. Hey, let's go there because we can live good there for a while. Yeah. And 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 we can collect up a bunch of stuff. And and you can teach you can you can teach and pass on our culture to others. And I think these insight zones seem to now have that context. And it's a hypothesis that is testable. Yeah. Because um, now I didn't. I use these rock shelters and caves. What I didn't use in my sample was open air sites. Yeah. And so that's really the next place that this research can go is looking at these open air sites testing this hypothesis are you finding inside stones on open air sites yeah oh yeah there's definitely there's definitely inside stones at open air sites um not every site has inside stones yeah but the ones that do um i'm saying has that has a lot of meaning as to what was happening uh in the demographics and the climate and the technology and the activities that they were performing, um, I'm saying that when you find one, it ha- it comes wrapped with all of this meaning. Yeah, yeah. So then the next step is to test, like ideally, you would hope to find like sealed contexts on open air sites with incised stones. Then you want to you want to test if similar conditions apply there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, exactly. So, and. Um, so my, my PhD really concluded with um, Sarah Winnemucca describing the flower dance. And she describes that um, females are either named after flowers or rocks. Uh-huh. And that when the dance is first announced, the girls have uh, two weeks in order to collect up either the flower they're named after or collect the rock they're named after. And she describes that the girls who collect the flowers, they weave those into their hair. They weave those into um, their clothing. They they make they make things out of the flowers. And then during the dance, they dance around in a circle and they sing a song about how um, I think how pretty they are. And before they're joined with their um, significant other. Yeah. Uh, she never ever talks about what the girls named after rocks do. So I I I took that to think, well, maybe they were making incised stones with them also, you know. Yeah. Um, it's another possibility. So <clears throat> so it's 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 there's some lines there. There's some lines of 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 logic that can be used to discuss these inside stones, hypotheses that can be tested. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot and there's a lot more research that just can be done. Oh yeah, definitely. There's yeah. so many questions involved with that. Yeah. Well that's awesome. Uh, are there any other things you'd like to say about the inside stones? Um no, I, I not at the moment. I don't okay. I don't have any other <laughs> thing I want to say at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty awesome. Uh, piece of material culture yeah and 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 I'm, I'm I just feel so lucky to have been able to study them yeah you know and to be able to meet all the people that 
um, have an interest also and to to give talks at conferences and to I, I'm just I just yeah. count myself as really lucky and really yeah. really uh, fortunate to do that and that's then, awesome yeah and I I really do think like everybody who's been a who's helped me yeah and and you know given me advice and mm. uh, yeah absolutely that's really cool well uh, I also think it's amazing that you've been able to like contribute like the contribution you've offered through this research is to like you said finally give a context to you know like the symbology and and the ceremonies and the behavior you know mm-hmm. they, it adds like a whole new depth of meaning to these sites rather than just you know like typical like ecological studies like oh well you know things are better over here so we've got people over here now we've got like well it's not just people over here because conditions are better it's like you also have transmission of knowledge to youth and yeah. you've you've got like a whole like you know sphere of activity going on now that's really cool yeah yeah cool. it's definitely some it's definitely things all things to, to keep in mind and to keep thinking about and expand upon um yeah absolutely yeah man that's awesome well i can't wait to hear more of your research as you know you keep working on this yeah and i, I am still working on it i'm working on a, a paper I'm planning on publishing in the Holocene soon uh, and I'm working on that with actually with Dr. David Robinson uh-huh. who is my director of studies so and then I'm working on a paper that I hope to get published in American Antiquities uh-huh. um, discussing some historical artifacts that were found at Hagup Cave comple- almost completely unrelated to my 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 dissertation uh-huh. uh so i um hope to do that uh with dr melanie shire uh-huh. so yeah and um uh, it's just uh i'm i'm just so excited to you know yeah to, yeah to, to be part of all that so that's great yeah well thank you so much randy thank you this has been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.